Daniel. Uh, well, good morning. Um, as Jay mentioned, my name is Daniel. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, for those of you who may be visiting, I'm not the pastor here at Seacoast Community Church. Um, but uh, Ademi, Pastor Demi asked me to fill in for him today, and I'm truly humbled uh, to be here today with you all to magnify the Lord through song and, uh, and through the reading of his word. Um, so today, I'm going to be walking us through Psalm 12. Uh, which will be our key psalm today. And I'd ask you to join me in reading this psalm, uh, either through the Bible located underneath the seat in front of you, or on this screen, which should be uh, brought up here shortly. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Again, this is Psalm 12. Save, O Lord... For the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Now, there are a lot of beautiful truths packed into this uh, short psalm. And while I'm excited to, to meditate on these truths together with you all, I also recognize for the need of God's Holy Spirit to be at work in opening the eyes of our heart to really understand the wondrous riches of God's Word. So in light of that, uh, I'd love to ask that you join me in prayer uh, before I begin. So Lord, I thank you for this day, um, for the people sitting here um, and God, for the opportunity to, to preach your word on this 26th of September. Uh, God, I pray for your grace over the words that I speak and for the hearts of those listening today. God, I pray that as we ponder your words, that you would soften hard hearts, open the eyes of our understanding, and revive our souls as we unfold your life-giving word. And I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so, for the purpose of today's sermon, I've divided this psalm into three different sections that we'll be looking at today. The first section uh, will cover the state of man. The second will cover God's response to the state of man. And then the third section we'll take a look at is our response to the state of man. Now, first I need to define what I mean when I say the state of man. Uh, in this case, I'm referring both to the world with all its societal and, and sinful baggage, but also to our own hearts. So when I say the state of, the man, state of man, I'm talking about those two things. Uh, but first, I want to do a quick overview 
of the state of man as it refers to the world that we currently live in. Now, it only takes a couple minutes of flipping through channels on a television or scrolling through news on a, on a website online to see and get an idea of the kind of world that we're currently living in. We read about natural disasters, wars, sexual immorality, corruption, murder, theft, and the list goes on and on. We see the evil uh, in the world on a daily basis, and it's a constant reminder that God has allowed Satan to operate as the, the God of this world, as he's described in John 12:31. And it can be easy to look at all that evil in the world and say, this is the worst it's ever been. And I heard that statement just this past week. Yet we see in these verses how the psalmist, in this case is David, described the state of the world that he was living in at this time. And I think it may give us a different perspective of how we view the world living in 2021. So let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Continuing on in verse 5, we see that the poor are plundered. And then in verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Now that is quite a dismal portrayal of the world. Godlessness and deceit abound with a wicked prowl around, kind of like animals. Not only committing evil, but exalting it. And the word here used in verse 8, vileness, is defined as the state of being utterly evil. And it says in verse 8 that vileness is exalted, that this utter evil is being lifted up as something to be honored and emulated among the people. So the depiction of evil in this verse shows us that evil is nothing new, but has been around since the very beginning. And while I don't want to diminish the present reality of evil today. I also don't want us to deceive ourselves into thinking that the former days were somehow better. For, so we, for we see through scripture how man has rebelled against God since the very beginning up until today. David, again the psalmist in this verse, in this uh, psalm, transports us back into his specific cultural moment and gives us a unique behind-the-scenes look into not only the state of man as it pertains to the world, but also into the very hearts of these faithless people living at that time. Hearts that are bent on one's own interests and where evil is celebrated as good. And what I'd like to do to remind us of what the state of man has looked like throughout the centuries is to similarly transport us back through time to take a look at what the state of man in the world has looked like for believers throughout the ages. And we can start all the way back in the days of Noah and read in Genesis chapter 6 where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now that's a tragic passage right there. The state of the world was so wicked at that time that God regretted making man in the first place. Fast forward a couple thousand years and we find ourselves witnessing the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes was a Syrian ruler 
who slaughtered any Jews who would not worship his false gods. Epiphanes was so bad that he's been called the Old Testament Antichrist. Move along a couple hundred years and we find ourselves under the reign of Emperor Nero of Rome. And early Christians believed that Nero was the Antichrist as they endured unspeakable public tortures as a result of their faith in Jesus. About 2,000 years later, we find ourselves in Russia where thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians were martyred under the Soviet government and Christians living at that time truly believed that Lenin was the Antichrist and then Stalin when he came after him. And while many more examples of evil could be brought up, the point I'm making is that Christians who have endured evil throughout the ages have believed that they were living in the worst possible time, the last days of Revelation, where evil was so rampant that they were sure the Antichrist had come. Now, I mentioned before how the state of man refers both to the world, but also to our own hearts. And I believe it's so much easier to see evil at work in the world rather than the evil that remains in our hearts post-salvation, because our hearts are incredibly deceitful. But I want to make clear that when we come to Christ through faith and trust him to forgive all our sin, we are in that moment born again, like it says in John 3.3. And that new birth is reflected in the change that takes place in our heart, where God gives us new affections for him that are now turned toward obeying and pleasing him rather than self, no longer slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness, like it says in Romans 6. And sin's control has been broken by the power of Jesus. And as believers, we have been washed, sanctified, and justified in Jesus by his Spirit, like it says in 1 Corinthians 6. However, that doesn't mean that we are without sin. Our sinful flesh still desires what it desires. And in Romans 7, Paul shows us this battle that rages between the evil desires of our heart, and the Spirit's good and holy desires. Paul says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So we see that we may delight in God and his ways, and yet we are still under sinful attack both from the world and from our hearts within. The book of 1 John was written to Christians who loved God, and in it the apostle says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Scripture makes clear that even those who have been born again will still sin. Through thought, word, or deed, we will at times grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, like it says in Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. But notice the second half of the passage I read, and praise God for this. God offers us continual, continual ongoing grace whenever we come to him with our sin and ask for his cleansing. Now, I don't know how one would begin to gauge the evil of one generation to the next, but regardless of how much evil may be present, both in the world and in our hearts, we know that often the evil that we see in this present day is always especially dangerous to us. Because the evil that we see currently consumes our attention now. And we need to be aware as Christians 
that though evil may appear to be thriving, and godless people boast and ask, who is master over us, like we see here in verse 4, we know that the same God who was with Noah in that godless generation, who was with the persecuted Christians under Epiphanes, Nero, Lenin, and Stalin, is with us now and will not abandon us to the evil of the world or to the evil of our own sinful hearts. So that's the state of man as it pertains to the world and our hearts. But now I want to take a look at how God responds to that state of the man and world. So see, we see here um, how God responds to the evil described in these previous verses of Psalm 12. Verse 5 says, <clears throat> Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. We see in verse 5 that God is not unaware of the suffering of his people. God hears the groans of his people. He sees the injustice done to the poor as they are plundered. And what does God do? He makes this powerful statement, I will now arise and place him in the safety for which he longs. Now some may say at this point, but wait, you just shared about how Christians were killed and tortured by tyrants throughout history. Where was God for those people? At what point did he place them in safety? And we see in verse 6, it's almost as if David anticipates those very questions as he makes this statement, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. David responds by affirming the reliability of God's word, making this statement directly after explaining how God will rescue his people, even though it seems like the most impossible thing. Again, one may ask, we just read about how evil is being exalted, and the godly are no more. So what hope is there in the midst of these circumstances? And yet David assures us that what God says will happen will happen. And we can trust God's word because, like silver refined through fire, God's word can be relied upon even in the midst of fiery trials. And the purity of God's word is put on display here in this psalm in a really neat way. Notice the difference between the, ver the words spoken in verses 1 through 4 and contrast them with God's word in verses 5 through 6. The godless utter lies. They flatter and speak with a double heart. To flatter means to lavish insincere praise and compliments upon someone, especially to further one's own interests. So we see that the fake, hollow emptiness of the words uttered by the godless people in verses 2 to 4. No truth is found in their mouth. And we know from Scripture that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's in Matthew 12. So we see through the false words that they speak that the corruption extends to the very hearts of the people as they lie and deceive one another. And their words ring hollow when contrasted with the words uttered by the mouth of God. God's words, as seen in verse 6, are pure, like silver having been purified through fire seven times, and shining forth with purity and strength, 
notice that the number of times the silver has been purified in this passage is seven. And if we take a look elsewhere in Scripture, we see how that special number reflects the divine completeness of God's holy word. We see this number pop up um, after the sixth day of creation, when God rested on the seventh day and made that seventh day a day of holy rest. And that's the first example we have of the number seven, reflecting a sense of something being finished or complete. And we see this number of completeness in other contexts. I'll take us just through a couple. In Exodus 22, the command for animals to be at least seven days old before being used for sacrifice. In 2 Kings, the command for the leper Naaman to bathe in the Jordan River seven times to be healed. And the command for Joshua uh, to march around Jericho seven, for seven days and on the seventh day to make seven circuits and for seven priests to blow seven trumpets. In all these instances, <clears throat> seven signifies a sort of holy completion, a perfection. And we see that perfection focused here in this psalm on God's words. Just like the words of the godless reflects their corrupted hearts, so also we see the holy purity of God's word reflects the purity of God's heart in the words that he speaks. And that contrasts so strongly with the empty, vain words uttered by the godless at the beginning of this passage. Now, seeing God's words as trustworthy, pure, strong, and consequently, seeing the person of God as being one we can trust wholeheartedly, we can understand that the way in which God places his people in the safety for which they long is to place them nowhere else but in the safety of himself. Verse 5 says that God will place him in the safety for which he longs. And that truth is realized elsewhere in the Psalms, where we see God acting as the refuge in which people hide. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And this amazing truth that God is the place where we find safety and rest and nowhere else is reflected uh, in one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's the story of the beggar Lazarus in Luke 16. And I'll just read a portion of this story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. 
but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, I love this story because it shows the way in which God will ultimately rescue his children. The beggar Lazarus died in pain, covered in sores, and destitute. And yet God placed him in the safety for which he longed his entire life by bringing him to live with him in the paradise of his eternal kingdom. But I want to make something clear. While God promises that he will ultimately bring all those who believe in him into eternal safety and rest, I want to make clear that God is not simply waiting for us to die before he brings us into that safety. No, he is an active God who is daily working in our waiting and is present to be a present refuge in times of trouble. We see the active working of God in just so many verses, but this is just a few. Psalm 68, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. Psalm 55, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Isaiah 46, Even to your old age, I will be the same. I will bear you up when you turn gray, I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will deliver you. We will not turn gray in heaven. This shows us that God is working here and now. So these verses, and many more beside, point to a God who is working in the here and seeing in prison, apart from the joy and comfort they'd received from the Spirit of God, stirring them to sing his praises in the midst of horrible circumstances. How else could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk into the furnace apart from their firm belief in an active God who was able to save them from earthly death? How else could the persecuted Christians that we talked about earlier, living during the Soviet Union, be able to pray and witness to their torturers in prison unless the Lord was working presently in their hearts and minds? We see that often. I just finished this book, Tortured for Christ. Highly recommend it if you haven't read it. So we can take comfort in knowing that, yes, We will one day be freed from this body of death. But even more amazing is that our God has arisen, like it says in verse 5, and he guards us even as the wicked prowl around us like animals. Now this leads me to my final section here. We've looked at the state of man, God's response to the state of man, and now we'll look at how we as believers are to respond in light of God's response and in light of his character. So this psalm opens with what I think is a beautiful picture of how we are to respond in the face of evil and trials and temptations. Verse 1 says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The cry for God to save is so simple here, so poignant in its plea, that it conjures up images for me of someone at the end of their rope. They know they can no longer do it on their own, and they barely have the strength to utter this simple cry of desperation. Save, O Lord. This cry reminds me of some uh, personal experiences I've had with rescuing people. I spent five years uh, serving in the Coast Guard, and I worked on board ships and at a helicopter rescue unit. And in every rescue that took place, the initial action that prompted our response was the distress call. And each person knew that they'd gotten to a point where they needed a help that was greater than themselves. And they called the Coast Guard because they needed urgent help, were in distress, 
and needed some serious rescuing. And often, in the rescues uh, that I was able to be a part of, before calling for help, the person had tried to get themselves out of whatever dangerous situation they were in. But often, their attempts to self-rescue often only made matters worse because they were relying on their own abilities. And this can be so true of how we respond in the face of evil. I know for myself that the trouble I can get myself into often takes the form of a Pharisee-like mentality that distances myself from whatever evil may be present. It can be easy for me to read passages like this psalm and see verse 1 that say, uh, the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And I I reply after reading that, and I say, that's right. There are not too many faithful people like myself out there in the world. And immediately insert myself into the category of saint because I love and follow Christ. And while God's word does make clear that all Christians are saints, we are at the same time called to be saints in the present tense. It's a daily dying to self and battle against sin that we are called to fight. And that's in the present tense. And we often lose that battle and end up looking just like the ones that we would call faithless. But praise God for his word that cuts us down to size. Hebrews 4, another favorite passage, says that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And oh, that God would give us a true awareness of our own sinful hearts. A cut received from the sword of God's word always bleeds humility. So when I say state of man, I'm not talking about some distant category of sinners who are sinning out there, but rather the state of our own fickle hearts that both delight in God's laws, yet are also so easily led astray, causing us to daily cry out to God, to help us, like we see the psalmist crying out here in verse 1. Though we know Jesus has ultimately saved us, may we daily continue to cry, Save, O Lord, save us from ourselves. And we see this is the response that we are called to make as believers in Christ. We see this response exemplified for us here in the Psalms, and especially through the prophets in the Old Testament, who God often called to lead the charge in modeling proper response to God, and often in drastic ways. The prophets Elijah, Jeremiah, and others who looked upon the disobedience of man and who lived among faithless people, wept and moaned and prayed to God. And they stretched out their hands to God in petition, crying out, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. So we see that the primary response we are to make in the face of evil is to simply cry out to God for grace and mercy, help and guidance, strength and wisdom. And the need for God to intervene is reinforced at the end of this psalm, seen in verse 8, with an acknowledgement that evil, both in the world and in our hearts, continues to be present. I'm going to read 7 and 8 here. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And in verse 8 it says, On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Evil does not disappear 
at the end of this psalm. And this is a reminder to not give up in the face of evil, but to continue trusting God even in the midst of the prowling wicked. This exhortation brings to mind a classic story from the writer John Bunyan. Bunyan writes in his book Pilgrim's Progress of an instance where the main character named Christian is trying to get to a place of refuge called Palace Beautiful. And I'll read an abridged excerpt uh, that I think illustrates the point that verse 8 is making in this psalm. The palace stands a little off the holy way, being approached by a narrow lane leading to a lodge or gatehouse. And starting up the lane, Christian has not gone far when he sees two lions in front of him. He stops and turns as if to go back, and the porter at the lodge has been observing him and calls out, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained and are placed there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those that have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come to thee. Taking heart, but still trembling, Christian advances warily, taking good care to walk exactly in the middle of the path as directed. And straining at their chains, the lions roar at him, but cannot reach him. I love this scene because I think it depicts the journey of a Christian amid the evils and the temptations he or she may experience in this world. God calls us to be in the world, but not of it, and to keep our eyes fixed on him in whom we can find refuge. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And my prayer and exhortation is that we would, like the character Christian in this story, be sober-minded and watchful, taking care to walk in the ways God wants us to. May we be like Noah, who lived in the midst of a godless generation and yet found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I pray that we would find grace in our time of need when we feel like the lions of evil are tearing at us both from the world and within our own hearts. And for those of you who may not believe or have that assurance of eternal refuge and life with Christ, I'd like to take you to a beautiful passage of Scripture found in Ephesians 2, 1-10, through which shows us how he makes us alive and gives us a new heart. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And notice God's response here to the wicked state of man. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And oh, what a beautiful gift we have been given from God. We were by nature children of wrath, but God, it's powerful, powerful string of words here, being rich in mercy, made us alive with him. And I pray that for those who are not following Christ, that you would see your desperate need for him and cry out to him for saving, like the psalmist does in verse 1. And for those who have been saved by his abundant grace through faith in Jesus, I pray that we would also cry out to him daily for help and sustaining as we battle against the evil of this world and our own sinful hearts. And we give thanks in knowing that one day the battle will be over. Christ will come again and will place us into the eternal safety for which we all long and wash away every trace of sin and every tear from our eyes. And we will one day live in the pure light of his glory forever. Praise God. So in light of all this, uh, let us now go to the Lord in prayer and in the quietness of your heart. As I pray, you can listen to me, but I would also encourage you to pray to the one who saves, both from our own hearts, the world, and again, if you don't know him, to cry out to him for saving, for eternal saving. So please join me in prayer. God, I pray that like a child instinctively cries to its father, I pray that we would be quick to cry out to you, O God. That though the world may grow darker with sin, I pray that we would find our help in you and you alone. God, I pray that you would encourage us by the assurance of your deep love and that we would be quick to cast our cares upon you who care for us. God, help us to remember that your word can be trusted and your promises are good. God, I thank you that one day you will return and make all things right and that good will triumph and evil will fail and that you will place us in the peaceful safety for which we long. God, I thank you that you do guard us from this generation forever like it says in this psalm. And I thank you for that trustworthy promise. And I pray all this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.